This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited to be speaking today with Christina Brassani, Managing Director and Head of Corporate Advisory for William Blair, where she supports companies on governance, activism defense, ESG consideration, M&A, and a variety of other topics. Before joining William Blair in 2017, Christina spent nearly 20 years at UBS. Thank you, Christina, for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so we're going to talk a little about portfolio optimization, but first I got to get started with a question. You know, we don't often see a lot of women in banking. And actually, I did a podcast with a woman attorney that advises activists in activist situations, also not a lot of women in the, the legal profession. I know maybe two or three women that have worked in banking on activism. So I just thought maybe we could start with, you could tell us a little bit about you know, any advice you might have on more women banking in the activism M&A arena. Yeah, I think in general, I'd love to see more women get into finance. I think women bring a really strong skill set. Women, you know, have a unique way of approaching the world, a unique way of negotiating transactions and love to see more of us. I, th- I think we're good at it. So, you know, one of the things that we are really focused on at William Blair is not only finding and attracting young women into the field um, and into our firm, but really making sure that they're successful and that they see a long-term career path. So, you know, as a senior woman, it's about reaching down and mentoring the women as they come up through the ranks. Just having someone who's trod the path before you reach down and pull you along and help you is really important. You know, we do have a number of formal programs where you know we make sure that we're helping our women. We also have informal programs where we just get the women together and talk about what's going on, what's working for them, questions that they have, things that might be going wrong in their day to day. And you know, just having a resource of people who might be going through similar issues is very helpful. And so again, I think just making sure that we create a path for women is the way to get more women in the industry. That is fascinating. And I have also note that I have interviewed one of the couple of the very few women activist hedge fund managers out there that run their own shop and act as another place where seems to be also very male dominated (laughs) sector. So women seem to be moving up in with the activist hedge funds in banking and in in the legal profession related to activism. So, but I wanted to get into a little about a white paper you wrote not too long ago that I thought was quite interesting. And it looked at the term portfolio optimization. I was actually just on the phone with a sell side analyst and he had used the word optimization in a note and he was kind of quibbling over whether that divestiture, I think he was a little bit afraid of mentioning in a, in a sell side note that he thinks that the company will start divesting assets because I don't know, Maybe he wants to maintain a good relationship with the, the management or something like that. But you talk about portfolio optimization and uh, ESG and activism and, and other topics in this note. And it seems to me like portfolio optimization and activist investing go hand in hand. You know, I often see activists pushing for divestors of what they like to call non-core assets. I know that companies often differ with what an activist might call non-core. And I was uh, chuckling at your your term semi-core asset. I feel like, you know, some divisions at companies can be called semi-core. That's a good way of describing it. They have some synergies, but they're very different from the main business. And uh, we wrote, for example, recently at Pitney Bowes, 
company targeted by successive activists, that they could see some divestiture. And uh, we know that Elliott, management, a big activist, wants Catalan, a contract pharma manufacturer, to divest. We believe that they want them to divest this Batera unit, which shareholders weren't very excited about when they bought it in the first place. So in your note report, you note that pure play businesses are still being rewarded in the market. Do you still agree with that? And tell us what you think a little bit more about this concept, portfolio optimization. Yeah, I, I do still agree with that. And I think, you know, there's no one size fits all. Every company is different. And what we do is we work with our clients to really figure out if you are a conglomerate, how is the market valuing you? Oftentimes it's driven by your research analysts, your shareholder base. You know, are they giving you credit? Do they truly understand all of your businesses and the synergies between the businesses? Or are they really focused on just one business? If that's the case and your shareholders and, and the research community doesn't truly understand the other pieces or they don't value them, you know, that's something that you should double click on and look at. I think the other thing we look at with our clients is where are you in the market? Are you number one or number two in your, in your different divisions or are you number 15 in one of them? And what would it take to get from 15 to top three? How much investment would that take? How long would that take? And could your capital be deployed better elsewhere? Part of that is also looking at if you did sell it, how much could you get for it? Are there buyers for it? What would the tax leakage be? And then lastly, what would you do with the capital? Are there places that you could deploy the capital where you could get enhanced shareholder value versus staying the course and running the different divisions? So I think there are a lot of pieces that you need to look at. I don't think you can you know, make a blanket statement and say it should only be a pure play because there are very many cases where diversification makes sense. But you know, what we do is we help clients figure out where where it does make sense and how to double down and where it doesn't and how to realize and redeploy capital to create more value elsewhere. Okay, so I came across a report recently that said that 44% of activist campaigns in the first quarter of 2023 featured an M&A demand. And you know, a big part of that was a breakup or divestiture demand. And so I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on whether corporations, in your view, with a variety of assets, you know, many conglomerates, larger conglomerates, still we have to worry about an activist launching a campaign arguing that the sum of the parts is greater than the whole and push for M&A. Is that something that, uh, in your view, corporations, conglomerates should worry about? Well, I think it's something that everyone needs to consistently evaluate themselves on. They need to look in the mirror and say, do my sum of the parts create more value than the whole. And, you know, I think what we often do with our clients is we encourage them to be their own activists. So we do the work with them to value each individual piece and compare it to where they're trading and help them figure that out. In an ideal world, you know, you're taking action as a company and a board doing what an activist might ask you to do if it's the right thing before they're even knocking on your door. And so we work with our clients to try to evaluate that on a consistent basis so that you're ahead of, of again, someone forcing you to do it. 
you're doing it proactively and, and you're in, in the driver's seat of doing that. You find that a lot of times companies are surprised that conglomerates are surprised that an activist is pushing them for divestiture or, you know, are they usually prepared and saw it coming? I think it varies. You know, I, I think there are times where I'm thinking of a specific situation where I was working with a client and an activist approached them to either sell the entire company or divest some assets. And little did the activists know that we had already run a process and there were no takers um, for yeah. the parts or the whole. And right. so, you know, sometimes you're out in front of it and there's a very good reason for not doing it, like having no buyers. In other cases, you know, we have worked with companies where they pick up the phone and call us and they say, I've got an activist and this is what they're asking me. Can you help? So it really kind of runs the gamut. I, I would always much rather be on the forefront of that and doing it mm -hmm. ahead of time. We like to work with our clients just on an ongoing basis and make sure that we're doing that annually. You know, ideally, you're working with the management team on a normal basis and you're presenting to the board annually about what all the options are. And it's, you know, should we stay the course? Should we do acquisitions? Should we do divestiture? Should we buy something big, do a merger? We're kind of always looking at, at all the alternatives to make sure that the company's doing what they should be doing to create value. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, I have to, I'm going to ask a question. I just did a feature about this called Bad Deals. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there seems to be a lot, lots of these situations where uh, I find where a company makes a big acquisition and then shareholders are surprised and disappointed. And then an activist shows up. And I guess the two most high profile examples of that involve Carl Icahn recently targeted Illumina, a pharmaceutical company that faced massive regulatory headwinds when it bought this company Grail. And then the year before that, Icahn went after a company called Southwest Gas, a utility that bought a pipeline that shareholders were not happy about that deal. And in both cases, you know, the seals were removed following Icon's agitations. He got directors elected. And I could think of another example, Massimo, which attracted an activist after it did a big deal that was kind of outside of its core competency or it appeared to be. And maybe if they had communicated it, what the deal was about better might have might have been viewed better by investors. But the share price, you know, dropped fairly a lot after that deal was announced. And then lo and behold, the activist showed up. So I guess my question to you, uh, Christina, is you can't tell your investors in advance of a blockbuster deal or a big deal that, you know, we're going to buy this company, this specific company. What do you think? Oh, you don't like that. Okay, maybe we won't. But is there a way to communicate to investors so that they're not surprised? Or, you know, how do you advise companies when they're doing that kind of big deals, particularly when they're thinking about buying something that doesn't really appear to have a lot of synergies with the core business? Yeah, I think, you know, the best way to do that is to drop the crumbs before you do uh -huh. the deal. So, you know, what we counsel our clients to do if they're looking down the barrel of, of a big acquisition is don't do anything until you've signaled to the market through your investor communications, through your communications with research analysts, obviously all on the up and up, that, you know, you are evaluating additional ways to grow beyond just organic growth. And so sometimes you go into more detail and you talk about white space or adding another leg to the stool 
you know, there are lots of different flavors of how you can do that in a way that puts people on notice that something might be coming. You're not committed to anything because you will always say, look, we will only do things that create value for our shareholders, but we are out there looking for ways to enhance our growth or enhance our margin profile or get into a new geography, whatever it is. So I think that's step number one in trying to avoid the scenario that you laid out. Step number two is really having a good process internally to stress test the acquisition. So you want to make sure that you have a board that is going to ask the right questions and not just say, CEO, I'll do whatever you want. You want to have an advisor who is going to help you anticipate how the market is going to perceive the deal. Typically, Mm -hmm. what we do for clients is walk through like, this is what shareholders are going to like and and investors are going to like. This is what they're not going to like. And how are we going to pump up the stuff that's good and mitigate the stuff that's bad using our shareholder communications, our investor deck when we talk about the deal? So making sure that you're articulating it in the right way. And then once the deal's announced, really getting out on the road and not physically, but getting out and talking about it to make sure that people really understand it. And oftentimes, I think when you look back on the places or the companies where things go wrong, you realize, you know, there probably was some confidence missing in the management team. It just Mm -hmm. didn't become apparent until you announced this big deal and agitated people. That's interesting. Have you ever come across a situation where the company's like, we want to make this big transformative acquisition. You advise them that the shareholders won't like it. and They go ahead and do it anyways. No, (laughs) normally our clients listen to us. So, you know, I think one of our jobs as their advisor is to tell the emperor that they don't have any clothes when they don't. So, right. you know, sometimes we do have to tell clients what they don't want to hear. And oftentimes we do tell them, look, the great deal, but now's not the time. You need to get your own house in order before you can go out and do an acquisition. Other times we'll say, now's the time to do it, go for it. And so I think a good deal sometimes is a good deal in, in a year and, and not now. And so part mm-hmm. of that is just knowing when it's a good deal and when the timing is right and counseling your clients to try to do the right thing. And in terms of deals, we're seeing a lot of kind of a convergence between activism and private equity. And I've seen this in a variety of different ways. One is this obvious situation where you have an activist like Elliott Management. They're starting this private equity group, Everding Coast Capital. They have made activist campaigns and then bids for companies and then they're buying a lot of companies in partnership with another private equity firm like Evergreen, Elliott and Evergreen partnered with Brookfield to buy Nielsen, the TV Raider. And we've also seen kind of uh, private equity firms themselves become more activist, you know, filing 13 Ds, even making hostile bids. I feel like with the, the rising interest rate environment, maybe we're not seeing as much of this as we used to. But do you feel like this convergence between private equity and activism is going to continue? I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. Most of the private equity firms, and I work with a lot in terms of advising them on making offers to public companies to take them private, most of them are very wary about doing anything that's perceived as being aggressive. Now, they might put in an unsolicited letter, but that letter would be private. 
I think right. they're very conservative about doing anything that's public because mm-hmm. from a reputational perspective, they want CEOs to pick up the phone when they call. And the opposite would happen if you're known as a private equity firm who just goes hostile on people who won't play ball with you. And so I think that keeps a lot of, well, some do it. I think it keeps a lot of the private equity firms, at least that I work with, wanting to be in a friendly camp to companies versus being aggressive and going hostile. As it relates to Elliot starting their own PE fund, I wish them the best of luck. I'm not sure how that's going to go. I think we'll know in a couple of years' time. Yeah, not a lot of activists, other activist hedge funds starting their own pre-firm uh, private equity units, but then not a lot of activist hedge funds with $49 billion in assets under management or whatever it is Elliot Management has now. You know, they're very large in terms of the activist investor world. Yeah, I just don't know if it's in their DNA to have a long-term value creation view. They're pretty mm-hmm. short-term oriented in general. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, but I do see like some of these smaller private equity firms. I feel like they're trying to compete with the bigger ones. I feel are very established and maybe won't be as hostile, at least not in the U.S. And some of these smaller ones, they, you know, they buy large stakes in companies. They follow 13D. They, in some cases, I've seen hostile bids and even director contests. I feel like they're trying to, you know, there's there's certain companies they really want to buy. And if they are not able to buy it, then at least they make some money on the share price going up when somebody else buys it. So I don't know. I, you see that on the periphery, but they're definitely always kind of smaller private equity firms that I, I see in this. But you're right. I, I don't see that much of it lately in terms of uh, hostile bids from private equity firms. In terms of strategic buyers, though, we have seen a lot of hostile bids and hostile bids have continued. And so I guess, Christina, maybe you could tell us how should a company prepare that you know, that they could receive a hostile bid or, you know, people, that's another thing, company, it's like non-core core. These are like sensitive terminologies. The uh, hostile bidder would prefer to be called an unsolicited bidder. And, you know, when is an unsolicited bidder become a hostile bidder? I suspect when they make a tender offer and, and do a director contest, go with their bid like uh, Carl Icahn does on occasion. But I guess any bid from Carl Icahn would probably be considered hostile. <laughs> but how do you prepare for that? And then also, I feel like there's a, a lot of scenarios where a company rejects a bid and then it becomes, maybe it's not a public bid, but it becomes public. And then an activist investor shows up because, oh, you rejected this bid. You're never going to see that valuation. Shareholders are upset. I'm just going to try to get directions on the board. So do you see that scenario where activists show up after hostile bids? And then I guess, how do you, how do you prepare for a hostile bid or an unsolicited bid? Yeah. So I would say, you know, the vast majority of the transactions that we see, sell-side transactions, start out with an unsolicited bid. Now, mm-hmm. I don't view an unsolicited bid as a hostile bid. It's just a letter going in. And oftentimes, there are conversations that lead up to that. And mm-hmm. you know, the buyer expresses formal interest in, in exploring acquiring the company. I don't think that that's hostile at all. And that's how most deals have been starting in the recent past. In terms of being prepared, you know, I think it's very similar to what we were talking about as it relates to being prepared for an activist. It's knowing what your value is using your long-term plan. So every company should be creating a long-term plan, running it by their board, having their advisor look at the value implications of that plan 
so that if you do get an unsolicited bid, you can very quickly understand, is that a bid I should entertain? Is that a bid I should outright say no to? Is that something I should negotiate? I think also understanding the buyer landscape is very important. So are there other buyers that I should be going out to? Or should I be negotiating just with this buyer? Every situation is different. I mean, I recently worked on a sell side and it was kicked off by an unsolicited proposal. We ended up not doing a process and doing a go shop. But the reason behind that was the company had a lot of dialogue with all of the potential buyers before they received this unsolicited proposal. And they were pretty confident that they weren't going to get any other bids and they might risk losing the bird in hand, you know, if they tried to run a process prior to signing up the deal with this, with the buyer who put in the unsolicited proposal. No, that, so, that's very, that's very interesting. But part of me wonders whether, you know, a scenario like that, a activist could come along saying that the, the, the process wasn't the best process that they could have run and they should have looked at other bids. Maybe the activist does not have the full picture. They just realized that there was no real, you know, auction process that led to this deal. And I see so many situations where activists complain that the, the process leading up to the deal was not correct. And, you know, the CEO wanted to keep their job. And that's why they accepted this deal and not this much better value deal where he would have, he or she would have lost their job. And I don't know, is, that, is there a concern there that an activist might show up? I, there always is. I mean, there's the activism concern, there's the litigation concern, and that's why we really work with our clients and outside counsel to make sure we are doing right by the shareholders and that we are uncovering all the stones, thinking through all the scenarios and really trying to get the best outcome for them. Because you know, again, just because you run a process doesn't necessarily mean you get the best outcome. And it's no one size fits all. Every company is different. Every buyer universe is different. And so you really need to look at the details of every situation and try to identify how do we get to the best outcome for the shareholders here? That's what drives everything that we do. And I very, very seldomly have worked with CEOs who don't feel the same way. I know that there's probably a lot of noise out there in the press along the lines of what you said, where, you know, just trying to keep their job. I really don't encounter that. I really, mm-hmm. you know, most of our conversations are all about how do I create value for my shareholders? How do I do what's right and for them? So maybe I'm just fortunate in that I work with really great clients. <laughs> clients that are also prepared for the, uh, the possibility of an activist for a, I suspect, as well. So uh, we are out of time, and this has been the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and I've been talking to Christina Brassani, a partner and chief of investment bank, William Blair's active advisory practice. Thank you, Christina, for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.